Well, we're in the book of Hebrews this evening, and because we've been in the book of Exodus so much this year, as I said earlier, we have correspondingly been in the New Testament book of Hebrews much this year. Hebrews is a book, as you probably know, that holds hands with Old Testament books like Exodus and Leviticus to show how those Old Testament books, with their heavy emphases on the sacrificial system and the priests and the tabernacle, how all of those are, well, they've always been pointing ahead to a a fulfillment in Christ. The writer of Hebrews unpacks that thesis at great length. He uses the same language as we saw in Colossians 2 on Sunday, that the, the old structures are shadows. But in Christ we have substance, reality, or what he says in chapter 9, the truth of things. I've often said that uh, if I were stranded on a deserted island and could only have one book of the Bible, just pause here, what would you think of? Don't say it out loud. What would you take with you on this deserted island? I'd take Hebrews. I take Hebrews because, well, it's partly like uh, several books in one. It's almost like cheating. You get so much Exodus and Leviticus in with it. Partly because it is complex and dense. Partly because Hebrews is so unrelenting in its Christ-centeredness and Christ-exaltedness. And partly because of its deep, pastoral concern for perseverance of the Christian life. So just keep these two in mind. Hebrews is deeply theological. It's what we call biblical theology. Not in that it's theology that is true in biblical, but it follows the storyline of the Bible. That's biblical theology. Not according to topics or categories. That's systematic theology. Hebrews does biblical theology and does it so thoroughly and richly. On the other hand, the book of Hebrews is so deeply and passionately pastoral. Whoever writes it, we don't know, he writes with such great concern And you see that in the closing brief word in chapter 13, verse 22. You don't have to turn there. Just listen to it. You can feel how it's just loaded with weight and significance and what we might call pathos. He says, I appeal to you, brothers. Bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. Now just notice a couple of things in that one verse. That this book, with sometimes jaw-dropping, dizzying detail of biblical theology and interconnectedness spanning the whole Bible, the author thinks that it's a word of exhortation. It's not a theology textbook. It's a word of exhortation for the writer. That's what he labels it. He calls it an appeal. And notice that in this relatively long letter second only to Romans in the New Testament, he calls it brief because it's a brief version of what he wanted to say, because it's a brief version of how long he could go. It's brief. 
He wants them to take it seriously. The pastoral concern of Hebrews, well, it can be found best in chapter 10. Turn there. It's not our main passage yet. But in Hebrews 10, we get about a seven-verse string here that really summarizes the pastoral intention of the book. Starting in verse 32, he says, But recall the former days. And here he doesn't mean the Old Testament. He means their former days. When you were enlightened, that is, when they came to Christ, then you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that yourselves, you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For, quoting the Old Testament, yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and persevere their souls. So that's the heartbeat of the book of Hebrews. It was written to Jewish Christians, some of which their friends had come to believe in Christ, but when this persecution hit, they gave up. They went back. They denied Christ. They went back to where it was safe. And so he's writing to those who haven't yet done that but are tempted to. They might. The persecution, they've endured it so far. But that's not a given. They will forever. And then the writer, with that in mind, argues his case with some tight theological and rhetorical argumentation using biblical theology. As a pastor slash wannabe theologian, that just fascinates me. And all that is by way of intro to the book of Hebrews before we now dig into our main passage in chapter 13. So turn there. Hebrews 13. We're going to look at verses 8 to 16 this evening. A passage that for many years I've thought is so fascinating and intriguing, but also um, difficult and somewhat intimidating. This is what it says, verse 8 of Hebrews 13. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. 
For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. We'll stop there. You might wonder why we are looking at verse 8 to verse 16. Why not 7 to verse 17? Well, then you might also notice that verse 7 is about leaders and verse 17 is about leaders. So apparently this is some sort of parenthetical paragraph in between. But it's not easy to follow. You might notice that. You might think this feels thick. This is a little confusing. These sentences are not easily diagrammed like we did in grade school. There are prepositions aplenty in these verses I just read. So I always have an outline for us to help us better understand a passage, but I think that's maybe especially important in a passage like this. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at a premise, then a warning, then the basis, and then the implications. So first, there's a premise. The premise is the changeless Christ. Verse 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Now the meaning of this is straightforward. Jesus doesn't change. And you might say, well, it's not that straightforward, Ryan. I mean, what do you mean he's the same? There's the incarnation, after all. You know, there's that verse that he grew in knowledge and in stature. Uh, what about What about the death and resurrection and his glorified body or even his ascension? He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Well, those are fair questions, which we can't explore tonight for time's sake, but also because it's not exactly the author's intent. The author's point is the eternality of the second person of the Trinity, the full divinity of Jesus Christ. And that has never changed even when or after he took on humanity. He has always been, he is now, and he forever will be. So verse 8 is straightforward in its meaning, but, but why is it here? What's it doing here? What's, it, what's its part in, in argument? I mean, after all, this, isn't, this book isn't called the... the The Proverbs of New Testament theology. These aren't floating statements. These are arguments. These are ideas that are being made. And sometimes as we think through an argument, as we try to think through the intention of the author, sometimes the best we get is our best guess or the best option of others. And I think that's what we have here as to why verse 8 is here and what it's doing. But I think it's this. I think the premise of verse 8, the unchanging Christ, sets up a contrast with the food laws and altars and priests and sacrifices that are going to be talked about right after. Remember, earlier chapters of Hebrews have so frequently made the point that some things changed with Christ's coming. So Hebrews 9, look at verse 9 of Hebrews 9. Gifts and sacrifices of the Old Testament, they are offered, 
And they cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation, until the time of change, until the time when a watershed moment took place. So Hebrews is all about how those institutions and practices and laws go through a change in Christ. It's a reformation. While those things change, though, Christ doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. That should be encouraging to us. Stick with the thing that lasts, not the thing that was temporary, even though it was temporary for millennia. Stick with Christ. He's forever. And you don't have to have a kind of Jewish background or an inclination to integrate Jewish Old Testament practices into your Christian life. You don't need that for this to be relevant for you. The changeless Christ can speak to and address and provide comfort in your ever-changing world, your ever-changing hopes and dreams, or at least temptations of those very things. The next time a politician comes along and promises X, Y, and Z, just remember that old Who song. The Who used to sing, uh, new boss, same as the old boss, right? You get your hopes up and they let you down, but we won't get fooled again. (laughs) Well, don't get fooled again. Look to Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Secondly, there's a warning, and the warning is, don't be led astray. Don't be led astray, verse 9, by diverse and strange teachings, which aren't explained at first, but then we read on, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. Now, of course, these foods mentioned here are not the kind of foods you find at Whole Foods or at McDonald's. This is not a critique of those people, who many of us are, who are somewhat concerned about what goes into our mouths and into our bellies for health reasons. That's not about health here. It's about uh, religious things. We acknowledge that it's not very common in our culture, even among those who are religious, to have a food component as part of their religion. Maybe you could say the Lord's Supper is something along those lines, but not really. That's not what this is talking about here. What kind of food is it then? Well, you could think of the Greek world with its various idolatries, with its various religions, There are all kinds of beliefs about which foods should be avoided and which foods should be used. There was food that was sacrificed to an idol. Um, There were certain forms of asceticism, that is withholding or denying yourself from certain foods as a a way of um, reaching some level of spirituality or appeasing the gods. It's not that, though. It's not Greek background here when it talks about foods. It's Old Testament food laws. Of course, the purpose of the book of Hebrews is interacting with the Old Testament right and left, and no, so, no surprise that he's warning those who would be 
devoted to, in a religious sort of way, the Old Testament food laws. And you say, yeah, but God gave them. Yeah, but he gave them for a time until the Reformation, as it was called, right? Remember, that was a hard lesson for Peter to get in Acts 10. He had that dream, that vision of the sheet with the animals in it and the blood and all these things that the Old Testament law said he shouldn't eat. And the vision said, take up and eat, Peter. And he said, not so, Lord. He was slow to get it. But then he got it. And when that domino fell, the implications were massive. Peter took the breaking down of Old Testament food laws to include Gentiles in salvation in the same way that Jews were invited in. And yet here, Hebrews calls those food laws, in our Bibles in the Old Testament, diverse and strange teachings. They weren't diverse and strange before Christ came, but now that Christ came, now that we're on this side of Acts 10, those are strange things. Uh, you, you can choose to avoid lobster um, for whatever reason. You can choose to avoid pork, but you're missing out. <laughs> but don't do it because you're trying to obey Old Testament law or you think that that's the higher spiritual plane. The New Testament has its stuff, but man, if you're looking for some extra commandments, I think they're like 612 in the Old Testament. Don't go there. No, it is good. Look what it says. It's good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. By grace. Our hearts are strengthened not by what goes into us or what is kept out of us. Our hearts are strengthened by God's grace. Not by diet, not by foods. And in this grace, notice verse 10, every Christian, I'd summarize it like this. Every Christian is privileged even beyond the Old Testament high priest. He says, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. Now that's thick. Most of us don't get that the first read. Let me walk us through it. The Old Testament priests could, could eat from the peace offerings in the sacrificial system. So part of the animal would be burned. What are you going to do with the leftovers? Well, that's priest dinner. That's, that's meal for priests. But they couldn't eat the sacrifices from the Day of Atonement once a year, Yom Kippur. Those are the sacrifices in which the remains had to be taken out of the camp and burned. We'll get to that in just a little bit. So the argument goes like this. They couldn't partake of those sacrifice meats, but we have an altar, it says, better than theirs, not made with hands, right? Not a gold box. We have a sacrifice better than theirs, a once-for-all final sacrifice that truly takes away sin. And hence, we have a privilege that they never could have fully known like we do. It's by way of analogy that we have a right to eat of the sacrifice. To eat. 
That is to partake of Christ. We are not nourished by Old Testament food laws. We are nourished and strengthened and fed by grace. And that is a privilege uniquely in Christ that even Old Testament high priests didn't get to experience or know. We're fed by grace. Grace which only comes in, was, then this leads to our third point, the basis, the basis for all this so far. And it's sacrifice outside the gate. And here we've got sort of a two-pronged approach. We've got an Old Testament precedent given to us in verse 11 before he gets to his main point in verse 12. The Old Testament precedent It was that the bodies, verse 11, of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest, that's on the Day of Atonement, as a sacrifice for sin, those are burned outside the camp. Outside the camp, away from the people, outside the perimeter of the camp. We saw something like this back in Exodus 29. I'll just read a little bit there. The flesh of the bull and its skin and its dung you shall burn with fire outside the camp. It is a sin offering. Remember, there was that substitution. There was that transfer of guilt. And the animal bearing that guilt was not only killed, but then because that was a guilt offering, its remains did not stay within the camp. It went outside the camp to be removed. There were multiple pictures of the removal of sin. One would be the scapegoat, where the priest would put his hand on a goat, symbolizing the transfer of guilt to this innocent goat, and then he would send the goat out into the wilderness. It's a picture of sin is gone. It just left us. It went poof. And another picture would be, and we burned it up. Poof. It's gone. It's not here Anymore, we, we saw something along these lines last Sunday from Numbers 15, just briefly. Remember the man who picked up some wood on the Sabbath? What was the result? He had to be stoned outside the camp. Outside the camp. He had to bear his guilt outside the camp, and it was paid for there. Well, Jesus follows that pattern. He follows that pattern. So now verse 12. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Jesus suffered outside the gate? Well, now we've moved from tabernacle stuff out in the wilderness to temple and Jerusalem stuff. Jesus was indeed crucified outside of Jerusalem on Golgotha at Mount of the Skull. That was suitable for Romans. They always liked their crucifixions right outside of town. Think of it as just in front of the front door so that those who were coming in had the very clear message. You don't mess with Rome when you come inside here. Look at that guy. You want that to happen to you? Nope. Okay, come on in. But that was also necessary for the Jews, for those being killed, to be killed outside the camp. Again, Numbers 15, even to this day, 
um, dead bodies are buried outside Jerusalem. Not even just those who have done something wrong. Anyone who dies, they're buried outside Jerusalem. But it also symbolized their rejection of Christ when he was outside the city. It was, symboli- it was symbolic of they'd thrown him out. And theologically, it represented that Christ was a sacrifice for sin. I mean, not that Christ is the same as those bulls and goats of the Day of Atonement, like in every way, no. But, but again, by way of analogy, they had this uncoincidental similarity that both bulls and goats on Day of Atonement and Jesus Christ at his crucifixion, were sacrifices outside the gate. They were both expressions of punishment for sin and sin not their own. Christ being crucified outside the city, at least for some scholars, they suggest that this is emblematic of the future of Christ's reach into the world. So John Owen, who wrote uh, seven volumes of commentary on Hebrews and gives about 25 pages or so to our passage this evening, well, he said, Jesus here declared that his sacrifice in benefits were not limited to the Jews, but equally extend unto the whole world. In other words, it's fitting that Christ was sacrificed outside of Jerusalem because Jerusalem's coming down and he's building a whole new city, a city which has its, its builder and maker as God, a city of a new world to come. Well, now, fourthly, what are the implications then? In light of all that, what, what are we to think about it? What are we to do about it? And in the last, what, four verses, we get two implications. Go out and offer up. Go out and offer up. The go out is verse 13. Let us join him outside the camp. Let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. You can imagine how this would apply so obviously for those first readers of this letter. Some of them needed to leave the safe confines of cultural and religious Judaism. Some hadn't been arrested. Some hadn't done so well identifying with their friends who had been arrested. Some played it safe, some played it cool, some kept the cards of Christ close to their vest. And some needed to leave the safe confines of cultural and religious Judaism, even if or while they stayed in literal uh, Jerusalem. They needed to publicly identify with Christ. That's what baptism is. It's a public identification with Christ. They needed to be willing to bear reproach for him. He suffered outside the gate, If we follow him outside the gate, chances are we're going to suffer for him in one form or another. It looks different culture to culture, time to time, yes. Uh, 
but all who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But notice that they go to him. They go to him. That's where he is. He doesn't say, you stay there. I'm over there. No, of course, he's not literally there. And it, This is metaphorical stuff. These are analogies of sorts, but it's worded not that they go out for him. They go out to him. They go out to where he is. In verse 14, we're, added, we're given an added rationale. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. A theme that has come up multiple times in Hebrews, not least in chapter 11 with Abraham. He left his home of Ur, not knowing where he was going, because he was seeking a city to come. Here we have no lasting city, but we seek that city that is to come. That's true not just for Jews in Jerusalem in the first century. It's true for us today. Well, there's a sense in which we love our fair city. We love our green chili and our balloons and our quirkiness and all that. I love it. But there's a time to say, here we have no lasting city. There's a time for godly patriotism for our country. And there's a time to say, here we have no country. We seek a country that is to come. But we go out to him. You see, even without Jewish roots, these same principles apply to every Christian. I mean, these were especially pointed for specific Christians under specific circumstances in the first century. And this man apparently knew these people. He knew those who had left. He knew those who needed to hear this so that they would remain with Christ. But even without any kind of Jewish roots in your history, we need to hear we need to tell others who haven't yet come to Christ that coming to Christ might mean leaving some things behind. In fact, it doesn't mean it might. It will. You will leave something behind. Repentance is a turning from and a turning to. There was something you were clinging to and trusting in for all those years, and now that Christ is over here and you see his beauty and worth and you want to trust in that, rightly so, well, there's some things you got to put down to cling to him. That's just the way it goes. Going to Christ means leaving some things behind. Jesus put it in the starkest terms. Yeah, you might have to leave mom and dad behind. Mom and dad might turn against you for this. We must go out to Christ in order to fully and unashamedly identify with him, holding nothing back. We need to embrace that identity as pilgrims and strangers, which our passage, Hebrews at least, talks about. So 1 Peter talks about even more. That's who we are as Christians. We're, we're on our way. We, we've left Home, in a sense, like Christian in Pilgrim's Progress. And we're on our way to the celestial city, and we're not there yet. Heaven is our home. That's our identity. Pilgrims, strangers. And we go out in this pilgrimage, not needing to waver, not needing to fear, but trusting him. We're with him. 
This is what he has for us, even if it's rough. And we need to do all this in view of our own perseverance. Don't forget that whole message of the book of Hebrews. you got to keep pressing on. you got to keep believing. You can't turn back. We're not those who shrink back. That's the nature of Christianity. We keep believing. Those who said that they did believe but shrunk back for good proved that they never really had the true thing. However fantastic it looked for a couple years or more there. So you've got to keep on. And here's how you keep on. Go out to him outside the camp. Risk for him. Bear reproach for him. Go to the world on his behalf. If we go out to him where he is outside the camp, and he went outside the camp in order to bring the world to him, then doesn't it necessarily imply that we go out to him and for him, for the world, with his message. So that's the go out part, and then there's the offer up part in verse 15 and 16. Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Two verses, both with sacrifice in them. One, the sacrifice of praise. The other, the pleasing sacrifices of simply doing good to each other. Sharing with those who are in need. These are sacrifices now in the new covenant because of Christ. His sacrifice doesn't mean we don't do anything. His sacrifice is the only way we get in, right? That's true. His sacrifice means the altar. His sacrifice means we're fed. His sacrifice means we're nourished, yes. But in light of all of that, also he commissions us. When we go out to him, we go out to him with mission. Mission to, yes, represent him in the world, but also give praise to him and do good to others. We are strengthened by sacrifice to sacrifice, according to the writer of Hebrews. So think through on your own time, perhaps this evening, what that would mean. What does it mean to continually offer up sacrifices of praise where Christ is confessed on your lips? What's it mean? What's it mean for corporate worship? What's it mean for the growing love for singing? What's it mean to do good to others, even to share with what God's given you? What does it mean to share in a way that is conscious of the Lord's pleasure of this simple thing I did to serve someone else? I love that our staff this morning skip staff meeting to, uh, to move someone into a moving truck as they're moving out of town. I wasn't there because I got a cold. I'm not, I'm not opposed to manual labor. I'm not above it. Don't think that. I wasn't there. I, I missed out. I love that our staff did that. And by the way, this is not a welcome mat for you to now hire the staff for free <laughs> every Wednesday at 8.30 if you'd like. No, but, but this was a... This was a need in the church, and our staff was happy to do it. And something simple. There's a need. 
a lady who can't get her stuff in the moving van on her own. Well, okay, we're there. That's pleasing to the Lord. 